Saviour, Lord Jesus, we bow before you. We pray you would be honoured and glorified. We pray for your Spirit to teach us. Teach our children in their time of learning, Lord, bless them. And now may the words of my mouth, the meditations of our hearts, be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Eight days ago, Vicky and I were out at Oran Park, where our Archbishop, Raffle, spoke to us in his presidential address at the Synod. He said, I've invited you to Oran Park in southwestern Sydney so that you can stand in this part of our diocese and see the new communities that are coming into existence as we meet. And we stood there and we toured the area in southwest Sydney. Today we turn to the Gospel reading that Vicky brought to us from Luke chapter 18 and 19, page 878, and we come to the city of Jericho, and Jesus will move from Jericho to Jerusalem. And it struck me that the distance there, about 40 kilometres from Jericho to Jerusalem, is not dissimilar to the distance to southwest Sydney area. In other words, you might almost talk if you were speaking in modern terms as Jericho being something like Greater Jerusalem, though you know uh, if you go there, you'll certainly see it's got it's very there's not much in between. But the journey here in Luke 18 we have is of Jesus coming to the city of Jericho, which is near the Jordan and then preparing to head up. And you do go upwards to the city of Jerusalem. And we're picking up from verse 31, where Jesus once again prepares his disciples for what lies ahead in Jerusalem. In verses 35 to 43, we see his power revealed as he is claimed as the son of David. And then in chapter 19, the well-known story of Zacchaeus reveals his authority to save. And it is the authority of Jesus that is the constant point of conflict. And you see it coming up at the start of chapter 20. As Jesus draws near to Jerusalem, Jesus is the central issue, even as he nears his death. Daryl Bock has written, even removing him changes nothing. Removing Jesus changes nothing, since God will vindicate him, only his base of operation will change. Well, today, three parts, part one, verses 31 to 34 of chapter 18, it is written, and so it will happen. Part two, the blind man with perfect vision. Part three, a short story of salvation, chapter 19, verses one to 10. Part one, it is written, and so it will happen, verses 31 to 34. Luke has just related the story of the rich ruler who turns aside from Jesus. Jesus then calls his 12 disciples to him and spells out to them about his coming death in Jerusalem. 
It is the sixth time, you see the heading, heading there, it says, he tells his death a third time. But in fact, it, it, you can count other brief references, but it's the sixth time that Luke has made some kind of reference to his death. He has spoken to them directly about it on three other occasions, like chapter 9, let these words sink into your ears, the Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. Now here in chapter 18, Jesus underlines what will happen in Jerusalem, and it has been foretold by the prophets. These events that are to take place, they are not random. It is written. Look at verse 31. See, we are going up to Jerusalem. Everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. But at the same time as that is spelled out, Luke also underlines the inability of the disciples to understand it. And as they get closer to the city, Jesus spells it out even more fully. And the more it is spelled out, the less they get it. Jesus here emphasises that his destiny is intimately connected to the city of Jerusalem. If you're familiar with the Gospel of Luke from chapter 9, verse 51, Luke has told us that Jesus set his face toward the city. He's been travelling that way. Uh, this, these ten chapters are, are, are known as the travel narrative. And now there's the final climb. And Jesus announces to the twelve, it is written, it is in the scriptures. My destiny is spelled out there. What the prophets wrote about all is about to be fulfilled. No specific passage is here spoken of, but it is very clear that Jesus recognises that there is a divine plan which absolutely must be played out. Nothing catches Jesus off guard. Jerusalem is his city of destiny. What will occur? He elaborates with detail. He will be delivered over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him. He then adds, and on the third day, he will rise. What did the disciples think of Jesus' words here? For us, on the other side of Easter, it is so plain and obvious. It means he will be killed and he will rise again. But for the disciples, they're perplexed, bemused. And verse 34 hammers home that confusion and bewilderment. But they understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them and they did not grasp what was said. I've read this dozens of times, but it's only in the past week that I really noticed what Luke says here. Three times, in three different ways, he said the same thing. They didn't understand of it, any of it. Second, it's hidden, they can't find it out. And third, they just don't get it. They can't figure it out. All there in the one verse, it is total blank, non-comprehension. Do you see what Jesus has done here? 
he has given a very descriptive prediction to his 12 disciples. What he declares would happen did in fact take place. And the fog that the disciples have about God's plan, eventually it blows away. And so they're able to declare the gospel themselves with boldness. But let's not miss the point by kind of placing ourselves over the disciples. How stupid they were! Because we are so like them. Luke puts it like this because we are all very often slow to see what God is doing. Our expectations prevent us from seeing it. Uh, to quote Daryl Bock again, no doubt part of the disciples' problem was their expectation of seeing something instant and awesome from Jesus in coming to set up the kingdom. They had a blind spot of, of false expectations and it caused them to pass by the difficult moments of his ministry. Don't we do that? We, we sometimes handle God's promises and have this imbalance in our expectations. We like the good bits, we cling to them tenaciously, but the demanding bits, well, I don't want to go there. And that's where the disciples are at. But of course, this is what we've been looking at in Romans chapter 8 with Paul's message. What comes before glory? Suffering. Where does Paul's own message, as it were, come from? It all comes here from Jesus, the 12 disciples' own experience as Jesus went to Jerusalem. There is the pattern. We prefer the victory to the agony, but often God moulds and shapes victory through the forging that comes in the tough and the difficult times of walking the Christian life. The disciples and you and I too take a long time to understand that glory would follow suffering. The path of faith can be very bewildering. They did not get it, though we do know that Judas clearly feels something is going astray in following Jesus. He may not grasp it, he may not understand, but we know that he comes to make a judgment, namely that the direction Jesus is going is the losing team. He loses faith in Jesus. And so he pulls out and sells his soul as he betrays Jesus. Well, part two, the blind man with perfect vision, verses 35 to 43. In this next scene, Jesus comes near to Jericho with a, a crowd around him. And as I thought about this scene and uh, this crowd moving along with Jesus, it occurred to me that the way to think about it is watching a golf tournament. Not because there were green fairways or Jesus had his putter in hand, but because of the movement of the crowds and Jesus. You see, when you go to a golf tournament, as I've done at times, you go to see the players hit the ball. It is exhilarating and inspiring to be right next to one of the superstars and watch him place the ball on his tee, set up, and then this kind of awesome combination. As weight is transferred, timing, and ball! And you watch this ball skyrocket 300 metres down the fairway. 
just what I'd like to do, generally occurs in my dreams. You have a wonderful time at such tournaments, you know. However, there is one major challenge. Where there is a superstar, an Adam Scott or a Jason Day, you have a crowd. And so it's hard to see them hit from up close unless you work out a strategy. You see, when Adam Scott is on the second hole, that's where the crowd is. But that's the time to run up ahead and find the best spot for watching him at the third hole. There's no one there. And you settle into the best viewing spot and gradually the crowd comes, you hear them coming. There are the forerunners and then the build-up of noises. They come over the hill and some of them look at your position enviously. You have the perfect spot. Well, these next two scenes, there are crowds walking along with Jesus and two people who find good viewing spots ahead of time. The first is a blind beggar. When you go into the city, in town hall, there's a mass of people around the train station, especially at peak hour, and there are those who are begging. Where do you beg if you're a beggar? You don't go past into some dead alley where no one is passing by. You get where people pass by. Sometimes I'm amazed at when you go to Town Hall Station, they're right there in the middle of people almost walking over them. But that's the point. Well, Luke 18 is a different world setting and century, but still what is key if you're a beggar is location. And this beggar who is blind is on the road to the city because that's where people pass by. He's no ordinary beggar, being blind. Presumably he has a regular sight that he gets to early as the people pour in and out of the city on their daily business. And like when a golf crowd is coming along with a superstar, he hears the commotion as the crowd draws near. What's going on? Jesus of Nazareth is passing by, they tell him. That news leads to the blind man to do the unthinkable in the minds of some. He cried out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. There are those who are at the front of the crowd who respond as if they were following a golf tournament. The one thing you must not do is make noise when the superstar is present. Silence. So they tell him, to hush up, stop it, be silent. But this blind man is not interested in golf etiquette and tournament officials in rules and silence. This is his one moment, the moment of a lifetime. And he takes it. Son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus might be from Nazareth, but clearly this man believes he is not merely that. He has heard about Jesus and he believes that this is the man who can change his life. Maybe it was the moment he had waited for all his life but never thought would really come. Whatever the case, he gives his all. His begging vocal cords go into full force. He calls. And notice he describes Jesus as son of David. He recognises who Jesus is. 
the long-promised Messiah. And so he cries for mercy from him. Well, those around, their response makes so clear that this, how they view this request of this man, He's just a nobody, insignificant. A superstar like Jesus is not interested in the cries of such people. And so they tell him all the more to be quiet. And that just sets him shouting even louder for mercy. But such cries for mercy indeed have their roots in David's own cry. In the words of Psalm 51, the very psalm we've had read as we go through the Psalms this day, that begins, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. You hear his cry, his longing for mercy. And Jesus heard the cry. And Jesus stopped. To the astonishment of those around, he orders that the man be brought to him. The crowd is wrong. Jesus is concerned about people like this blind man. The surrounding culture may want to ignore him, but Jesus, despite the blind man's lack of status in the world, Jesus wants to respond to his cry for help. God looks on the heart, not on a person's social status. So the man is brought near and Jesus asks him, what do you want me to do for you? What a moment, what a question. In this past week, uh, my wife was called to an emergency. She's been working uh, with uh, a kind of long-term patient through her hospital chaplaincy, a fairly young woman who in recent years has gone blind. And uh, so she was called up and suddenly Mary had to go and help, assist her and help her. And Mary's been constantly struck by how this woman's life has been massively impacted by her loss of sight. What do you want me to do for you? Lord, let me recover my sight. And Jesus grants his request and declares that his faith has brought him deliverance. As we saw over past weeks in the book of Romans, faith is key. Access to God is open through faith. And what next? He followed Jesus and glorified God. As do the people praising God. What a change of tune for them as well. It is a miracle. What do we make of such miracles? Well, again, I go to that expert on the Gospel of Luke, uh, Daryl Bock, who notes that through the Gospel of Luke, the miracles have a particular purpose. They serve as pictures of deeper spiritual realities. This man is blind, a mere beggar, but he has seen clearly 
when it comes to what God is doing on that day outside of Jericho. He, blind, has perfect vision when it comes to the eternal plans of God. God is fulfilling his promises to David. This Jesus of Nazareth is none other than the son of David, the son of God. Those who see most clearly are often not those most visible in our society. The blind beggar stands out, especially in contrast to the previous section where we had the rich ruler who, who could not see and was caught up in his riches and drifted away from Jesus. This blind beggar sees by faith and his sight is given to him and he follows glorifying God. What a change of life. The author Tim Chester in a book asked the question, what would you like to change? Maybe you'd choose to change your appearance or find a partner or have better behaved children. One more step, step up the career ladder or maybe just onto a career ladder. Perhaps you'd like to be more confident and witty or maybe less angry or depressed or less controlled by your emotions. We all want to change in some way some of these changes are for good, others not so good. But, said Chester, the problem with all of them is that they're not ambitious enough. God offers us something more, much, much more. One minute, a blind beggar by the roadside begging for life's basics. Next minute, journeying with Jesus to the city of David. To God be the glory was his cry. And no one was shutting him up now. Luke's gospel here makes clear, no matter how low our social position has been, when we come to Jesus, we are elevated to the highest possible station in life, to be a friend of God. As Paul puts it in Ephesians, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, no longer by the roadside, up seated in the heavenlies. And at heart, it's recognising Jesus, the Son of David. That's what, G that, that's what Luke here is driving home. He never stops making the person of Jesus, the issue of this gospel. Do you recognise him yourself? Are you blind spiritually? To your own sin? To your need of Jesus? Maybe you are a Christian, but sin is still blinding, your, your, your judgment is skewed. Ask the Holy Spirit to open the eyes of your heart. Cry to Jesus for mercy. He hears the cry of faith. So, so thirdly, a short story of salvation, chapter 19, verses 1 to 10. This little section is the classic Sunday school story with ditties like Zacchaeus was a wee little man, and a wee little man was he. He climbed up in a sycamore tree for the Lord he wanted to see. It's well known, 
and often makes fun telling, especially to children. But while we can have fun, as Ken Hughes observes, it is serious and it is Jesus' last personal encounter before his arrival in Jerusalem and the events that will lead to his death. It takes place as Jesus passes through Jericho. There's the chief tax collector named Zacchaeus, who we are told is rich. And we might expand what this means. As chief tax collector, he was head of a tax farming corporation, Kent Hughes says, with collectors who extorted the people, then paid him before he paid the Romans. He was the kingpin of the Jericho tax cartel and had the scruples of a modern-day crack dealer. He was filthy rich in the fullest sense of the term, not a likely candidate for the kingdom. But in verse 3, he was also seeking to see who Jesus was. To see. What a loaded term after the incident of the blind man. But he recognises that he has buckleys of seeing anything because he's too short. But Zach has been to a golf tournament before. He knows what you do. There are ways of dealing with shortness. Verse 4, he ran ahead, found his sycamore tree, and up he climbed, hidden away, but with a perfect viewing spot. It's a sycamore tree, which is a sturdy, easy tree to climb, though also uh, one which has reference going back to Amos, who was a keeper of sycamore figs. And the, the Hebrew word links in with the idea of, of restoration or rehabilitation, which we'll pick up as we go along. So here we have this picture of a tiny, rejected man sitting alone, hidden in order to get a glimpse of Jesus. It's very touching. He certainly did not want the crowd to know he was there. He had his dignity. He'd get a private view of Jesus. The crowd would pass. He would remain unseen like an orphan peering through a lighted window on a cold, dark night. Yes, perhaps that's a little dramatised, but one kind of gets the picture, don't you? You get the sense that he, ex he, he did not expect to be noticed. The words of Jesus in verse 5 must have come like a, a bolt out of the blue for him. Yes, he expected Jesus to pass that way, but when Jesus stopped right underneath him, wow, this really is the best spot. And then Jesus looked up. Zacchaeus' heart must have been pounding so loud. And the total amazement when he heard his own name on Jesus' lips. Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. I've been to lots of golf tournaments, been close to them as they hit. They've never turned and said my name and invited me over for lunch, or said they're coming to my place. Zacchaeus personally addressed and noticed the complete authority of Jesus. Not simply, I'd like to stay, but I must stay. There is a necessity here, as the Son of Man must suffer, so now he must stay with Zacchaeus at Jericho. 
Jesus regarded his encounter with Zacchaeus as a divine appointment. His seeking Zacchaeus was a work of sovereign grace. Zacchaeus thought he was seeking to see Jesus, but here it is Jesus who has sought him. The crossing of their lives at the sycamore tree in Jericho was a meeting ordained by God. There's a hymn that runs, I sought the Lord and afterward I knew. He moved my soul to seek him, seeking me. It was not I that found, O Saviour, true, no. I was found of thee. And Zacchaeus hopped to it. Notice how he hurries. He, he welcomed Jesus. And in verse 7, that brings a lot of grumbling and complaint. Oh, Jesus, he's got it wrong this time. Those in Jericho, they know who this guy is. He deals in their money. When it comes to character and money, well, there isn't much difference in today's world and theirs. He's viewed as a low-life crook, a scuzzball, as Dale Davis puts it. The crowns have written off Zacchaeus, but Jesus, Jesus does not write off those who seek him. Jesus is not worried about what associating with him might look like. He isn't driven by popular opinion. Jesus is above the games of reputation that the world plays. And what's more, in verse 8, we have this astonishing transformation that's expressed by Zacchaeus, who said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. Zacchaeus is not short in reforming actions. He declares his new stance. He gives away. Zacchaeus is no fraud when it comes to Jesus. There is no scam happening here in Jericho. This is a man with a changed heart. In his changed heart, love for God is expressed in this love for others. And Jesus responds in verses 9 and 10 and gives him the full tick. Here truly is a son of Abraham. Today. Today. This little man has become a big one. Zacchaeus has shown how one should respond to the gospel of Jesus. He recognises his failures and not only confesses them publicly, but also seeks to make proper restitution. His faith is active. His worldview has been transformed by Jesus coming into his home. He went up the sycamore fig, and I referred to that sycamore fig being linked to the word rehabilitate. That's what's happened for this puny tax collector, despised and disparaged by all, but whose life has been rehabilitated, has been restored, just like the sycamore tree can be restored. And so we come to this climactic verse in verse 10. The mission of Jesus. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. To save the lost. We are called now to join with Jesus in that mission. But of course, first, 
Have you welcomed Jesus into your home? Have you had that divine appointment? Have you responded to God's call on your own life? When it comes to faith, do not be a fraud. We are called to transform living like Zacchaeus. But having done that, we are called to join in the mission of Jesus to seek and to save the lost. And so here I conclude by returning to those green fields out southwest and sharing some words of the Archbishop to which I've added. He had a recurring refrain, do you see the crowds? And my extra is, do you see the lost? He spoke about the population of Greater Sydney being projected to grow by 800,000 people in the next 20 years. I try to think, well, how many is that? And I did some calculations. I worked out that means every week, 769 people are moving in. I have difficulty coping with one, two people moving into the suburb uh, every couple of months. 769 every week for 20 years. And then it goes on. There's going to be 2.4 million in the 20 years after that. That's three times as much. And in this great region, there's only half a dozen Anglican churches. Members of Synod said, Our Archbishop, can you see the crowds? Can you see the lost? Can you see the crowds, said our Archbishop, who are building homes and planning to move to this area in the next 5, 10, 20 years? Can you see in your mind's eye the ranks of houses upon houses that are going to be built in the places where today we have seen rolling green paddocks? And in those homes, people with hungry hearts, can you see the crowds? Can you see the lost? And the Archbishop concluded the gospel is a summons to people made in God's image, redeemable by his Son, eternal beings precious in his sight, and the church is the community of God's people. The ministry challenge before us, and here he's speaking about our diocese, is to bring the gospel to the people that God has brought and will bring to Sydney. Do you see the crowds? Do you see the lost? Crowds of people from all cultures who will come to Sydney, people who will move into the green fields, crowds of young people hungry for love and meaning and purpose. Will these suburbs be built on aspiration and consumption and nothing more? Can we not offer a gospel of new life, of hope, light and love? Must we not do so? Members of Synod, do you see the crowd? Members of St Stephen's, do you see the lost? Let us pray. My Lord Jesus, we thank you for coming to the people of Israel to seek and save the lost. We thank you that that message of salvation has come to our shores. We pray for your Holy Spirit to lead, stir and guide us as we respond to the needs of our own day and age. We ask, Lord Jesus, that you would dwell in our hearts, 
and that our lives will be lived to your glory. Amen.